0: One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com.
1: There are places in the landscape where you get a physical sense of the great age of the world. Where the whole artifice of the modern world is scraped away. And the headland of rock at Pavland, which is called Yellow Top, on account of the of the lichen that grows on it, is one of those places that you get a sense that the world is old there. This week's podcast is the story of a world-changing discovery. A dead body. Decorated and adorned with tantalising clues. A story of mistaken identity. A man on a mission from God. Dangerous beasts. Ice half a mile thick. Love and tenderness. I'm stepping out across Britain to discover 100 remarkable places that have shaped you, me and the whole world. I'm Neil Oliver. And this is my love letter to the British Isles.
0: You started your journey a million years ago in Haysborough on the Norfolk coast. Where's the next stop?
1: The second place that's for me unforgettable is Goat's Hole Cave, which is at paviland on the Gower Peninsula in south Wales. Was a cave in Yellow Top near the bottom that you can only really access from above. You can climb up to it, but it, it's more usually accessed from above with ropes, uh, and it's called Goat's Hole Cave. And it was to that location that uh, an eccentric churchman, come scientist, called the Reverend William Buckland, came in the third week in January, 1823. Uh, He was in the process of writing a book that he would eventually publish that was called Relics of the Flood. As a churchman, but as a churchman interested in nascent science, he was trying to bring together what he understood from the Bible with the new sciences of geology and others. And he was looking for proof that the biblical flood had really happened He was a creationist. He believed that the world was only 6,000 years old, that it was the work of God during the course of a single week. Uh, But he was also aware that that the new disciplines of science were beginning to tell a slightly different or a radically different story. But he wanted to be able to keep the two together, religion and science. And because he was trying to prove that the flood was real and had really happened, when he got word from people at Paviland of elephant bones inside the cave. He thought, this is great, because obviously elephants don't belong in this part of the world. If there are elephant bones in that cave, they must have been washed by the flood. These must literally be animals that didn't get aboard Noah's Ark. They perished in the flood, and in some way their their sad carcasses were washed into this cave, and there they have remained, and now they've been discovered. So he got down there to to South Wales, to uh, the Gower Peninsula, to Pavilland, quick as you like. He threw a rope over the cliff top and climbed down and got himself into the cave. He's a real eccentric figure, uh, Buckland. He he always wore his academic gown, riding about the countryside on his horse. He always wore his black academic robe. He kept a hyena for a pet. Uh, He set himself the challenge of tasting the flesh of every animal and bird in existence. At one point he wrote about how while well, only blue bottles were absolutely inedible, he didn't care much for moles either. He was a really strange guy. Nonetheless, he arrives at Paveland and he, he gets down into the cave and sure enough...
0: So he's got a mission?
1: Absolutely. he's at that. He he, he is born and lives in that time when uh, we in this part of the world were, were on the cusp of new understanding. Uh, men of science, women of science, uh, were were beginning to pick away at the wall of ignorance, I suppose you could say. You, we had always just accepted the literal truth of the Bible, particularly in relation to how old the planet was and how how old our species could possibly be upon it. And there were people who were finding it uncomfortable. On the one hand, they were they were people of faith. They wanted to believe the, the message of the Bible, but they could see in the landscape around them and on account of the experiments and observations that they were making and conducting, that... It, there was an uncomfortable fit. There were things that had to be adjusted. And Buckland was one of those that thought, well, the flood happened, the Bible tells the truth. We just have to find the physical remains and then it will all make sense. We'll be able to fill in the gaps and it will all come together as one perfect whole. He becomes a better scientist as the years go on. But at this time, when he goes to Paviland, he's caught in the middle. He wants fervently to believe in the literal truth of the Bible but he can tell, he's got a hunch that there's other things awaiting discovery. And so it's with that partially open, partially closed mind that he climbs into the cave at Paviland. And sure enough, he finds animal bones of species that don't belong in South Wales in the early 19th century. He identifies uh, an elephant skull, uh, also the bones of rhinoceros, uh, oryx, uh, all sorts of creatures, hyena, saber-toothed cat, and he's absolutely over the moon. He thinks, well, th- there can only be one explanation: these these bodies have to have been washed in here by by a great deluge. This is this is physical proof. And in the in the excitement of the moment, in the vicinity of the what he thinks is an elephant skull, he digs, opens up a a, a little trench, a, f- a few feet long and a few feet wide, possibly expecting to find more bones of the elephant. What he finds, though, are human remains. He, he's, he gets that much right. He realises that he's dealing with the bones of a human being. But he's mystified by what he sees. They're stained red, like rhubarb stalks. They're dark red in colour. And when he touches them, powder comes off on his fingers. So he, he interprets that as makeup, the sort that a woman would wear on her face. And lying in amongst the bones are little trinkets rods carved from ivory which he thinks is elephant ivory periwinkle shells with holes bored in them so that they could be strung as a necklace so he sees jewelry he sees makeup and decides that it must be a woman when he arrived at the cliff top he had noticed archaeological remains which he identified as a roman camp he was wrong about that it was actually an older Iron Age encampment but at least he spotted it he saw that people had been living on the cliff top so he told himself a story specifically that he had found the remains of a prostitute a woman who had made a living by coming and going from her home in the cave to the cliff top uh, meeting the needs of her Roman soldier clients and then when she eventually died of whatever old age, whatever, the people Buried her away out of sight of decent society, back in the cave, away from all civilized people, and she went down into the literature and is still known as the Red Lady of Paviland. Wow! And that was how she, the remains were understood for the longest time, but it was only in the in the relatively modern era that they were re-examined and found to be the bones not of a woman but of a young man. He stumbled upon what in the in the understanding of the world at the time uh it, it is a jumble of evidence that it doesn't it doesn't fit into the into the general understanding of the story of the world he knows he's found something peculiar but he's trying to comprehend it in the context of his upbringing as a as a man of god who believes that the bible is telling the truth and that the facts therein are correct now he's confronted with all these Uh, bits and pieces of information and he he tries to fit it together into something that makes sense remember fundamentally what he believes is that the world is only 6,000 years old everything, everything from the creation of the planet up to his moment in 1823 is all contained within a 6,000 year period so he's he's got to find a way in which everything that's happened, the shaping of the world the coming and goings of the different species humankind itself all fits into that 6,000 year bracket, It's quite a challenge because we know that the universe is 14 billion years old, let's say, and that the planet is, well, four and a half to five billion years old. We know that. Buckland didn't know that at that time. So he tries to make sense of what he's seeing in the context of his understanding of the world.
0: And that's because they went back through the Bible and worked... You
1: arrive at 6,000 years because if you add up the ages of the of the prophets, the elders of the Old Testament... And you lay their lives kind of end to end. You arrive arithmetically at the conclusion that the world began about four thousand and four years BC, before the birth of Christ. All of the lifetimes, as described from from Adam through to the end of the Old Testament, give you this figure, and that was the way that the that was the way in which Buckland's world had arrived at an understanding of how old the planet was. Somebody asked the question one day, how old is the planet? You know, the Bible says that God created the earth in six days and created the animals and created humankind, but when did it all happen? Well, somebody added together the lifespans of the of the elders and said, well, it must have happened about 4,000 years before Jesus Christ was eventually born. Many people, many people today, uh, many people in modern North America, many people in modern Britain, still believe in the literal truth of the Bible and I'm not going to get up in the faces of those people and tell them that they're wrong they're, in, they're entitled to look out at the world and perceive it in the way that they wish to so we, we still to some extent live in a world even a modern world that makes room for the literal truth of the Old Testament that hasn't gone anywhere it's just a more marginalised belief I mean it's not that far away from
0: us there is no.
1: it? It's still here, but certainly there was an absolute, absolute, you know, unshakable belief at the time that the planet was 6,000 years old. So, when, when modern science came properly to pay renewed attention to the human remains that Buckland had found, uh, they realised it's a young man. It's not a woman, it's a young man. Uh, the skull is absent. Other bones are absent. The, the grave had been; it was being eroded by by storms. So, in a sense, Buckland got there just in time. So he didn't find a skull, but there was enough there for scientists to be able to determine that it was a young man. As to the powder, the red staining is ochre, which is uh, iron ore powdered down, grated and pounded down until it turns into a powder. And archaeologists often find ochre in the presence of graves and burials. And an interpretation has been that where someone had died and in the aftermath of dying, the the colour of life leaves the body and becomes grey and pallid. It was traditional to cover them in powder, to to give an illusion of the colour of life. So they might have applied the red ochre to to dead faces, dead bodies, to, to give the illusion of them still being alive. And that had remained in the grave and had eventually stained the bones as the thousands of years passed and everything broke down and decayed. Uh, And what Buckland had identified as feminine jewellery is now interpreted as a ritual deposit that the people who put that man in the ground wanted to give him things of value to show that they loved him, to show that he was a person of status, perhaps adornments that would enable him to make a good impression in the next life. Who knows? But in any event, they put these things in with him, not with her. So you might say it's the red laddie of Pavillant, but it's a, it's a young man died in his prime, of causes we can't we can't determine how he died, from his bones. There's no marks on the bones. But actually, in terms of his uh, what we can determine about his physique, he's um, quite a gracile, long boned, quite slim, quite well proportioned. In some respects, some of the bones apparently to the eyes of experts suggest a more African look maybe than European so maybe more African in appearance you might say but again it's hard to tell because apart from anything else we don't have a skull the radiocarbon dates which were eventually obtained for those human remains show that that person lived and died around 34,000 years ago that means that they lived and died before the last ice age set in. He was living in our part of the world. Uh, We were not yet islands, we were still a peninsula, still attached to mainland Europe. The sea levels were much lower. Because the climate was deteriorating, uh, temperatures dropping, we were moving towards and into another ice age. More and more of the sea was locked up in the ice and sea levels were maybe 70 feet lower than they are today. So the people who were coming and going from that cave, when they stood on the lip of the cave, where we look out now straight onto the sea, they would have the sea would have been maybe 70 miles distant. And the and the what is now the Bristol Channel would have been, if you could have seen it at all, it would have been a distant river through the greenery of the land below, a very different landscape. But it was a landscape populated not by elephant but by mammoth, woolly mammoth, woolly rhino. Uh, saber-toothed cats, oryx, creatures that you know that we do not associate with this part of the world. But that was the that was the world that he inhabited. There's been some uh, supposition that perhaps he died on the hunt. That maybe he was part of a group of hunters and they were maybe following the, the mammoth, and maybe in the in the attempt to bring it down, which was eventually successful, maybe in the attempt to bring it down, which was eventually successful, he was hurt and killed, and they buried him in the cave. And because His death was associated with the death of the mammoth. They may have put the skull of the mammoth as a kind of gravestone, two souls brought together in the moment of dying. The man and the prey, the man and the mammoth together, and his fellows might have seen fit to bring the two together, bury him in the cave and and leave the mammoth head there as as a reminder of the way in which they had come together in the moment of death. But of course, it's only supposition, it's just an interpretation based on the evidence we can't possibly know. people go there now. What's fascinating is that uh, because the the bones had lain there for such a long time, they're in a a museum now, uh, and there is is nothing there in the cave, but people are in the habit of going into the cave and spending the night. It gets cut off. When the tide comes in, you're completely isolated. There's no way back out unless you climb back up the, the cliff face. And people are in the habit of lying as close as they can to where they think the grave of the red. Laddie of Paviland was because people feel a sense of you might say that place feels holy for some people. Holy is an old word that has Proto Indo European roots. It means that which must not be violated, that which must be preserved intact. That's holy, and f- and f- and there are people who feel a sense in which his presence in that cave for such a long time you, know, you have to remember that his bones were laid down and then they stayed there while an ice age that lasted 20,000 years came through and drove the animals and the people away from the peninsula of northwest Europe. And you might say that the, the red laddie of Pavaland was left all alone for all of that time and then 15,000, 12,000 years ago the ice age came to an end the ice retreated and people came back in and eventually, in 1823, his grave was discovered. But that length of time in which he had lain in that cave has, for some people, imbued it with a, a certain sanctity. It's a, it's a sacred space, like a church or a cathedral, a place that's been made holy by his presence. And although he's no longer there, people go there in hope of finding some sort of communion with him.
0: Wow. And so so he wasn't a Homo sapien?
1: Oh, he absolutely was. He is a modern human being. It's the first ceremonial grave of a modern human being that we know of in northern Western Europe, not just in the British Isles, but in the whole of northwest Europe. A modern Homo sapiens, treated in that way, laid in a cut grave, given you know a dusting of red ochre and with items of ivory and periwinkle shell for his adornment. It's the oldest of its sort in the whole of northwestern Europe. He's like... Tenant number one.
0: So here on the Welsh coast, he makes this extraordinary discovery that's of profound importance for the history of Homo sapiens in this part of the world.
1: It's important in all sorts of ways. It, it's He's it's the first of his kind that were found so far. Buried in that way, treated in that way, are modern Homo sapiens treated to a, a, a burial in that way. He's the, he's the first. We might find an older one in due course, but not so far. So it's a, it's a place made sacred by his having been there. He's the first of us that we know about. And I love the way in which people have imagined that perhaps he was a hunter and perhaps he died on the hunt. And perhaps his people thought that, you know, they then killed the mammoth. Because he died in that moment and the mammoth died in that moment that they should be that they should spend eternity together I'm very intrigued at least by the idea that people thirty four thousand years ago were thinking in that way. It might be fanciful but it it suggests it implies a sophistication that's sophisticated thinking you know to be in the aftermath the hunt is over one of your fellows has been fatally wounded or killed how do we make sense of that in our understanding of the universe. Well, let's take him up to that cave, that place that we can see from far off. Every time we pass this way, we'll know that he's in there. And when we bury him, we will mark his grave with the with the skull, with the head of the, of the animal that died in the same moment. And that will become a sacred place in the landscape. I find even the possibility that that's the story that explains the things that the Reverend William Buckland, found even the possibility that that explains it, I find that important.
0: Yeah. And so, as a person, you go and stand on the craggy coastline of Wales and actually, as long as your brain can take you back, instead of seeing sea, you're seeing land and you're, you ha- you're the it's knowledge almost... is going to transport you.
1: For me, uh, it's part of the fascination is is being reminded that people just like us i mean that man who was bit, he's, ex, he's a modern human being with the same intellectual capabilities with the same he's the same he would only his circumstances are different he is one of us just like the people walking the streets of our towns and cities today but imagine that he lived in a world that was populated by mammoth and rhino and saber toothed cats. And rather than looking out at the Bristol Channel as you do today, he looked out at a grassy plain far below, with threading through off in the distance, the silvery jewel of of a river, cut through the grass. And he looked down on, you know, maybe herds of, you know, mammoth. Maybe at night he had to light fires to make sure that the saber toothed cats didn't come. And that people just like us had to contend with a version of Britain so unimaginably different. And it's only chance and fate that's meant that he lived his life and we live ours. It's only time and circumstances that separate us from him.
0: He lived 34,000 years ago. I mean, it's...
1: it's it's Well, it is unimaginable. We bandy these numbers about. Uh, well, inevitably... You... In the case of Haysborough, who you're talking about, the you know, the better part of a million years ago, you know, it, it takes it takes 11, 12 days to count to a million. If you start one, two, three, four, it'll be two weeks' time before you reach a million. We bandy these numbers about, and 34,000 years ago, in the context of a million, seems dwarfed. But it, it's such a long expanse of time that it allows for an entire ice age. It was the coming of and the duration of and then the ending of 20,000 years of our part of the world being under ice a third of a mile thick. That, as well, is what separates us from him. His living and dying was long enough ago that there was time for an ice age. (laughs) And so you can go, yes, without abseiling down and getting into Goat's Hole Cave. It's enough, to some extent, just to go to the, the gower just to go to the Paviland, you know, yellow top, and stand and look out and just allow yourself to be reminded that it was all very different once and it was very different for people who were exactly the same as us.
0: What was it like when you went there?
1: Oh, it was brilliant when I went because it was part of filming a, a television documentary uh, called the, the History of Ancient Britain. And I, I abseiled down, we took... Rope specialists—they set up the ropes. Uh, we had a helicopter filming my abseil descent. Got down, the, and we went into the went into the cave, uh, and we saw we were able to from the maps and plans that are you know available in the textbooks. We could work out exactly where in the cave the the body must have been found. So you could put yourself right there because there's nothing now. There are no animal bones. It's been swept clean long ago. There's just shattered stone and, and a, a thin covering of soil over the floor of the cave. Uh, but if you, if you get the opportunity to get into that cave, to know that people knew it 34,000 years ago and were making use of it, maybe it was somewhere they were in the habit of taking shelter, or maybe it was just somewhere that they were aware of in the landscape and when they lost one of their own they thought, well, let's put his body there. You know, and maybe, they, maybe when they left that time, maybe when they having buried him, maybe they never went back. Maybe it remained a place that was just never touched again.
0: Could you feel anything?
1: I can, but I'm, I'm, I'm mindful of the fact that it's in my imagination. I, I think, it's in my wiring, I, I think about what places must have been like and, and when I know that someone was buried in this place. And, and lay there for tens of thousands of years, and was actually only taken out of it, you know, a couple of hundred years ago. Uh, I, if only in my imagination, like like to consider the possibility that the, the the time separating us it's gone. In a, it's like gossamer thin. Time is a is a construct. In a place like Church Hole Cave, you can you can get outside time can stand and look out at the sky framed by that kind of teardrop shape of the cave mouth and know that that's where it's always been and that the people that buried their friend or their son or their father or whoever in that place and then walked away from it, that's the shape that they walked through to continue their life in their world and that's the same shape that I walked out of to continue my life in this world. And it's a, just a it's part of it's just a product of imagination. But you're in a real place, and you know with absolute certainty that thirty four thousand years ago there was a funeral of the of the oldest of us, the first of us that we know about in this part of the world.
0: Do you admire the eccentric
1: Reverend Buckland's
0: search for the truth, or or judge him for not seeing past his creationist views?
1: You can't judge. Well, it's. It's unhelpful uh, to to sneer or to or to condescend or to or to ridicule uh, a, a person's attempts to understand. Another thing that's interesting: the fact that, um, for example, that, that cave was full of bones when he went in in 1823. There's a mammoth skull, and there's and there's bones of all sorts, many species, just littered on the floor. People until relatively recently, our ancestors were just walking past. You know, it, we would we would walk into a cave like that today, and instantly all of that stuff would be collected and curated and and valued and put in museums and all the rest of it. But that that those bones lay in that cave for thirty thousand years, and no one bothered. Other people presumably went in, and saw, and thought nothing of it, and just turned around and walked out. And thought, oh, bones. Maybe their lives were too hard. People just, you know, struggling. To, to make a living, to, to get enough food to feed their families, to shelter their families. You couldn't divert enough attention to, to ponder why there might be bones in that cave. But in 1823, in the third week of January, the Reverend William Buckland went in and he at least he paid attention to everything that was there. And he was scientific about it. You know, he, he made plans of it. He drew what he saw. He recorded it. He wrote about it. He tried to interpret it. He he, he endeavoured to make it fit into the hypothesis that he had in his head, which was the hypothesis that he had acquired from reading the Bible and and being brought up as a Christian man of the 19th century. But as far as possible, he was trying to think as a scientist does. You can't possibly ridicule him for that. He was trying to understand what he saw.
0: It's incredible to picture these hunters sat in their cave eating animals, which, for me, it's hard to imagine ever set foot here.
1: It's just, uh, at, that, at that time, uh, the climate was such and the terrain was such that it lent itself to uh, being populated by different animal species than, than are here today. But you, you were living. It was a, a, a time when the climate was was deteriorating. Uh, you know, long cold winters, you know, less and less daylight, less and less warmth, and so hence woolly mammoth, woolly rhinoceros, animals that had evolved to to take advantage of and to survive and to thrive in you know, colder conditions. We can't be explicitly clear about what the circumstances were to explain why all of those bones ended up in that cave. But it would appear, the mammoth being what it is, that the mammoth skull was carried in by human beings. We know with absolute certainty that the the, the bones of of a man who lived before the last ice age set in was buried in that place. And a burial is a sophisticated act, bothering to take care of the dead says a lot about the people that do it. They're not just walking away from, you know, someone when they fall over dead. They're concerned and they want to mark the occasion and they want to treat the remains respectfully. And, and to know that you can go to that cave and know that that ritual was performed there, that people, there was a gathering of fellow human beings who were mourning and grieving and trying to do their best for one of their own and then eventually the moment came when they had to turn around and walk away from them forever, from their son or their brother, and leave them behind in that way. That makes that place unforgettable. It is touched by holiness. It has been made sacred by the, by the care shown by some people just like us to one of their own 34,000 years ago. The significance of their behaviour lingers like... Perfume in the air after somebody has walked out of a room, it's still there. It's part of the story of it's built these British Isles. Yes, it's it archaeology provides you with the opportunity not just to find the big things, you know, not just to find a, a buried Viking longship or a or a or a Stone Age house, but to be confronted by the realisation that you can go to a place like Goat's Hole Cave at Paviland and be in the presence of grief, human emotion expressed by people just like us, that's, that's there. You, you, you know that because people cut a grave, laid the body in it, covered it in a powder to make him look as if he was still alive and then gave up precious things, had taken many hours days to make that is the that means that you can you can go to certain places and encounter human emotion, love sadness, grief those can be discovered in the same way that you can find a stone knife or a bronze sword you can find the way people just like us responded to an event like the death of a loved one it's there As your eyes become accustomed to the low light of the cave, you see, if you're lucky, mysteriously beautiful etchings. And bang, you're transported back through thousands of years. In the place where you might wait now for the bus, once upon a time, great beasts roamed. Next time, in my love letter to the British Isles, You can follow in my footsteps as my journey unfolds across these Isles of Ours. Go to the website to see the places I've chosen and let me know the locations that inspire you. Neil Oliver's Love Letter to the British Isles is produced by Neil Oliver and Paul Ratcliffe for Fat Belly Films. Music by Malcolm Goldie. Additional research by Oscar, Evie, Lucian, Teddy and Archie. Finance, Catherine and Trudy. Post-production, Althorpe Studios. Photography by Neil R. Graphics, Paul Plowman. And special thanks to the people across history who have made and continue to make these isles such an incredible place. An FBF Podcasts production.
0: Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time.